chapter 6, beginning from verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 20. All do you not know that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor adulterer, nor, uh, nor idolatry, nor adultery, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor those who habitually drunk or verbal abuser, nor strangers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are permitted for me, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted for, for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. However, God will do away with both of them. But the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God does not only raise the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Shall I then take away the parts of Christ and make them parts of prostitute? Far from it. Or do you not know that the one who joined himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit within. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, sexually immoral person sins his own body, sins against his body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought? for a price therefore glorify god in your body the word of god Amen. let's pray god our father thank you god and uh that our, we can be here today lord to hear your word to be transformed to hear these amazing words that change us the words that make us to become more like you as your servant speak to us, God, we pray that you will speak through him, O oh Lord, that your word can find a fertile uh, a space in our hearts that can dwell and produce fruits that will bring glory to you. We pray that, God, you will help us, God, to accurately hear your word and live it. And please help us, God, that since we hear from you, that we will walk in your ways and we will choose to follow you in every way that we live. Speak to us, God. We need you. We're desperately in need of your words. Build us up as a family as well. We pray all this to Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
good morning, everybody. Good to see you all out here today. Um, such a blessing to be together and worship the Lord. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about Christians and politics. Just kidding. After eight <laughs> lessons and after eight classes and two sermons on that subject, I thought we'd turn our attention to something a little less controversial. So today we're going to discuss what the Bible teaches about sex. Um, actually, probably not less controversial in some ways, more. In all seriousness, though, nothing seems to offend people in our world today like the biblical sex ethic. And I know that uh, what I say today on this particular topic is going to be offensive to some of us. Um, so I want to say this. I want to assure you that it is not my intent in this lesson to be offensive. Um, my goal is to be no more offensive than Jesus himself was and is. And that ought to be the goal of every Christian when we look at anything from the Word of God and when we speak from the Word of God, is to simply let God speak to us, let God teach us, and let the Word of Christ be what speaks forth. Uh, and so that's my goal today. I realize, though, uh, a topic as sensitive as this, I probably won't say everything well. Um, and there may be some things that I say that uh, sound wrong or sound insensitive or hurtful. And, uh, and I would appreciate any uh, correction and help and encouragement. Um, but I hope you'll hear me today. I hope you'll listen to me on this subject because it's not the stuff that I'm trying to bring to you is not stuff that's from me. It's stuff that's from the Word of God. The words that we just read um, are, uh, are some pretty powerful words, and we need to consider them. Um, I'll also say this. Uh, I preached not too long ago about uh, love trust, and I do want to say um, that uh, at the start of this that I'm not, I'm not preaching a sermon on this for, in, for any one person. Um, this, this sermon is for all of us uh, because all of us have been affected by the corruption of this world as it relates to this topic of sex. Um, many of us have pasts that we're not proud of. Many of us have failures in the area of sex that we uh, are disappointed by or, or maybe that still plague us or, 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 or cause us to feel some sort of guilt. And, uh, and so I'm speaking about this because we are called, as saints of God, we are called to a very high calling. Um, we are called to be separate and holy to the Lord. We've been called to sexual purity, and we've been called to sexual holiness. We are, as we just read, one spirit with the Lord. Um, so I realize, too, that, th that talking about this, uh, for some of you, may be kind of shocking. Uh, even in some churches today, talking about sex is still kind of taboo for a lot of people. Um, and I'm going to try to make the case here uh, briefly that it ought not be that way. Um, I was reading an article this week um, about a Canadian technology firm that teamed up with a Rwandan nonprofit to create a chat bot that will answer young people's questions about sex. Um, and the goal behind this is recent research on adolescent perceptions of love and sex in Rwanda revealed that youth regularly turn to internet pornography for guidance about sex and relationships. Do you hear that? In Rwanda, this is a third world country, in Rwanda, people are turning to internet pornography to learn about sex and love. Uh, it ought not be that way. Um, our, our family is going to learn about sex from somewhere. 
And it ought to be that that's something we learn about together with the family of God. It ought to be that that's something that we discuss with the family of God. If, if we don't teach our children about sex, then who's going to teach them? They're going to learn about it. They're going to hear about it. So it ought to be us that's talking to them first and trying to teach them sex as God designed it to be in Scripture. So what I want to do today um, is I want to start out by just looking at briefly uh, what do we learn about the goodness of sex as God designed it. Um, and then we're going to talk about the problem of immorality and then how God can redeem us from that and, and renew us to live holy and pure lives in sight. So first let's talk for a moment about the goodness of sex as God designed it. Uh, I don't know what, you, what everybody's background is here. Um, I don't know what your experiences have been like. Uh, I certainly know that there are many churches, and I've been in some churches, where uh, when sex was spoken of, it was always spoken of, or at least it felt like it, in a negative way. Uh, in a negative way. It was always spoken of as if it was something bad. Like, it's always something bad to talk about. Um, Maybe uh, some of you come from backgrounds that are just the opposite, where sex in any way, in any form, in any place is viewed as good. Something that's natural, it's something that's, uh, that, 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 that's as natural as eating, some would say. So therefore, it can be used however we want to use it. I don't know what your background is, but I want you to notice that the Bible speaks about sex as being a gift from God. We've done this with other things recently. We talked about how money was given by God, wealth is given by God as a gift, but then corrupted by humans who sin and use it to do evil. We talked about that with technology. Technology is a gift from God, but we take it and we corrupt it to do evil. Uh, same is true with politics. Authority and government is a gift from God, but we take it and corrupt it and use it to do evil. And the same is true here with, with sex. Um, if you were just reading this text that we just read, for the first time, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 9, down through 20. Uh, I, would, I would imagine, it's been a while since I read this for the first time, but I would imagine if you're reading this for the first time, it likely produces in you a very negative reaction. Um, it almost sounds like the Bible here is presenting a negative view of sex. Uh, like if you have sexual desire that you're headed to hell. Um, but I just want to point out that's a huge misunderstanding of this and many other texts as well. The biblical view of sex is tremendously different from the world. But it's also tremendously better than the world. God's design for sex um, is far better than the way the world is using it for its purposes. Uh, and, and, and let me just start by saying this. Um, if you want to know how to use something properly, where do you turn? All right, you got I'm, some. I'm still getting used to all this technology. Um, if if you get a new iPhone, I don't have a very new iPhone, but I have uh, one of the one of the older models. If you have, if you get a new iPhone and you're having a problem figuring out how to use that phone, where do you go to learn how it functions? Where do you go to learn? How, how to use it. What are all of its capabilities and how could you use it in a way that's going to benefit you most? Well, hopefully you would turn to the creator of the iPhone, to Apple, who will teach you how to use the iPhone, at least how to use it as they see best. 
Because that's the way things work. When you're looking to understand something and, and to understand how something should be properly used, you turn to the designer. And let me say this. God is the designer of sex. God created it. God is the author of sex. God is the giver of sex. So if we want to know how to use sex for good, we better turn to God. We better look to God. We better listen to God because God is going to teach us how to use this gift in a way that will not ruin you or destroy you or hurt you or, or, or pain you. He's going to teach you how to use it for your good. And let me just say, too, that in this text that we just read, Paul is affirming what Jesus himself taught, what God said from the beginning of the scripture, that God's view of sex is that sex is designed by God to be used as a gift in a covenant relationship of marriage. So you see that in chapter 6 and verse 16. He says the two shall become one flesh. And what Paul is saying is his whole case about how to use sexuality is built on what God taught way back in Genesis at the beginning of time. When God created man and woman in his image, and he said that the man shall leave father and mother and he'll be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God's design from the beginning was that sex was only to be used. I'm going to speak in the positive sense here, not just the negative. Sex was only to be used inside of a covenant relationship of marriage. And I want you to think about this. What is a covenant? It's not a word that's... Uh, you know, 2020, that's, a, that's an old word, but, but it's an important word for us to understand biblically. A covenant creates a relationship, but it's not just an ordinary relationship. This is a relationship that is far more loving and intimate um, than most other relationships out there. And it's also a relationship that is far more binding and enduring than most other relationships out there. Notice, there's a legal sense that comes with the idea of a covenant. There's a legal binding relationship, uh, but in that relationship, it becomes far more loving and intimate if it is affirmed as God designed it to be. Now contrast that idea of a covenant relationship. Contrast that with the idea of a consumer relationship. And I want you to think about this for a moment. What happens in a consumer relationship? We all have consumer relationships, and this is how it works. Consumer relationship says, um, I, I, will, I will stay with you as long as you make me happy, right? I'm going to work with you. We have a business here. We have a deal, and we're going to stay together. As long as you give me what I need, I'll give you what you need. We'll stay together, and this will be great. But we're always looking for an upgrade, right? Uh, just this week, um, I was thinking about how much we're paying for car insurance now and I started looking around and said, you know what, maybe I could do better, maybe I could switch from Geico and save more than 10% on car insurance. You know? um, unfortunately it didn't work that way, but that's how we work in many relationships, isn't it? We, we, we'll stay with you as long as you give me what I want, but if you're not doing your part, then I'm out. And actually, sadly, a lot of that thought process has been uh, transferred to how we view relationships with one another. Um, Think about this, in a consumer relationship, there's always work that must be done. There's always performance that must be done in order to keep the other person happy to keep them. In a covenant, the relationship becomes more important than my needs. That is, keeping this relationship is more important than me being happy. It's more important than me getting what I want. It's about the relationship. 
And let me just suggest here that God has designed sex to be in a relationship because that's where sex will flourish. That's where sex will actually bring great joy and satisfaction that lasts. Think about this. Think about some of the benefits that come with sex inside of marriage. Think about this one, for example. In a marriage relationship, sex brings security. But outside of marriage, there, sex only breeds more and more insecurity. Think about this. When you're, in, when you're married in a covenant relationship to somebody, now you can get rid of the facades. Now you can be yourself. Now you can share. You can share with this other person. Remember in the garden, man and woman, as the, as the, as the story began, were naked and they were not ashamed. The idea was that before sin came into the world, there was this beautiful knowledge of one another. It, and they knew each other and they loved each other. But actually sex, when it's used outside of marriage, it can do just the opposite. It, there's, there, there's always, it's used in a consumer relationship. Sex is used as a good and it's always, we're always marketing ourselves. We're always working to try to perform, to please somebody else, to get somebody else to stay with us. And it ends up being very damaging. It ends up actually breeding the opposite of security. It ends up breeding security. In a marriage relationship, when two people are committed and they're committed for life, you're free to be yourself. You're free to love. You're free to, you're free to, uh, to, 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 to uh, simply get rid of all the fake and all the facades and, and stop trying to perform well enough to win someone's unconditional love. It's already there. There's a security as God designed sex in marriage. Uh, let me suggest this too, that actually when God, when you use sex as God designed it to be in marriage, what happens is a deeper love grows over time. When loyalty is not dependent upon feelings and emotions and, and not dependent upon how this person treats me, it gives an opportunity for truer and deeper love to grow. Now let me just say, let me just pause here and qualify this. Um, if somebody gets married and one person in the marriage is viewing it as a covenant relationship and the other person in the marriage is viewing it as a consumer relationship, it can be very exploitative. There can be a lot of damage done. But if two people together say, hey, we are covenanting together till death do us part in sickness and in health. When I'm sad and when I'm happy, I am staying with you. You know what happens over time? Deeper loyalty. Deeper love, deeper feelings grow. And I can speak to that. Tomorrow is our seventh anniversary. And I can tell you that I love Lindsay more today than I did seven years ago when we got married. Uh, some of you guys have probably been married longer than that could speak to this as well. Uh, when, when you're in a committed covenantal relationship and, and, no, and, and neither party is looking for a way out, there's a, there's a place in it. There's, a, there's room for these deeper feelings, these deeper feelings of love to grow. So think about this. Sex is not a consumer good. In a consumer relationship, there's always going to be this pressure to perform up to the satisfaction of the other. And if I can't perform up to the satisfaction of the other, then I'm always, always going to end up lost or I'm always going to end up alone. But in a covenant relationship, there's no need to feel like I must do this. I must perform in this way. It is about the, it, it is about the mutual edification, mutual love, and mutual upbuilding. And in fact, what the Bible says is that when we, when we commit to have sex as God designed it in marriage, 
By giving yourself sexually, you are committing your whole self. In marriage, we give our bodies as a portrait of how we give our whole lives. In fact, let me just say this. When he talks about the two shall become one flesh here in verse 16, and even in Genesis 2, uh, he does not mean here that you're only becoming one flesh in body. That's not the point of what he's saying here. He's not just talking about the act of sex here. To become one flesh is to experience a perfect union in every way. He's talking about spiritually. He's talking about emotionally, just as sexually. You see, sex as God designed it creates this deep intimacy, this deep oneness, and this deep communion between two people. In some ways, sex is like glue. It joins you together. And it takes two people and holds them together and makes them one. So, as God designed it, sex in marriage is not simply a result of emotions. It's not simply a, a result of feelings. It is a covenant. It, it is part of a covenant to give yourself completely to another person. And, and in act, that act of sex is actually like the covenant renewal. And in this way, the union that comes through sex is a foretaste of the joy that one day we'll experience when we are united, perfectly one with the Lord, when we are fully one with the Lord. Notice in verse 17, he says, the one who joins himself to, to the Lord is one spirit with him. Literally, the one who glued himself to the Lord is one spirit. You see, this is describing the utmost intimacy. And when you join yourself to the Lord, you are making a covenant with God to cling to him to cleave to Him. And so we are united with God, both body and spirit, now and forever. Marriage is designed to be a foreshadowing of that, a foretaste of that intimacy that God has and God desires to have with each one of His people. And so think about it. Outside of, outside of that covenant relationship of marriage, sex is, is not an act of self-sacrifice. It's not an act of covenantal love. It's in fact taking and not giving. It becomes more about me and less about the other person. Which leads to the second point I want you to think about here, the problem of sexual immorality. And I'm just going to say this in three ways. I think the text teaches this in three different ways. We'll try to highlight it in the text, and then we'll talk about it even outside of the text. Um, the problem with sexual immorality is it hurts you, it hurts others, and it hurts the Lord. All right, you got that? It hurts you, it hurts others, it hurts the Lord. Well, let me, let me try to uh, prove that to you first. Um, first, it hurts you. Well, how? It, it damages, I'll just say this first, it damages your faith. Sexual immorality will damage your faith. In fact, um, I heard about a preacher uh, a few years ago who was ministering to a lot of young people. And uh, this is kind of a, uh, a cruel way to uh, try to help people. But uh, nonetheless, he found it to be effective. Uh, I wouldn't try it, but, but, but I'm not going to knock him for it. Uh, he, he, he was ministering to a lot of young people, and when they'd come back from college, he'd take them out to coffee, he'd sit down, he'd talk with them, he'd talk about the state of their uh, spiritual lives, and, 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 and when he'd ask them about how are you doing spiritually, you know, oftentimes what would happen is people would start to, uh, you know, just get, get a little uncomfortable, get a little uneasy, and they'd talk about their difficulties and their doubts that have come from science classes or that have come from philosophy classes and, and how it's all started to shape the foundation of their faith. 
And at that point, he'd look them in the face and he'd, he'd ask one question. He'd say, who have you been sleeping with? Which might seem like a really like a bizarre question to ask, but many of them, he said, would respond, how did you know? And the point that he tried to make from this was that actually, uh, whenever you have a kid coming home with questions about evolution, with questions about philosophy, or some such issue, the prior issue often is a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience. And I want you to think about this. We may think, well, I can be involved in this, and I'll still trust God, and I'll still love God, and I'll still serve God. But actually, what it does over time is it damages our faith. In fact, um, there was a famous atheist. His name was Aldous Huxley, who confessed in his work, The Ends and Means, that he didn't want there to be a God, and he didn't want there to be meaning to life because it interfered with his sexual freedom. Listen to this quote. Uh, he said, this is right before he passed, he said this, I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning, consequently uh, assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that actually freeing myself from the thought of there being a God who's going to call me into account for my behavior freed me to be able to live and do as I please. And that's what happens a lot of times. You see, the Bible doesn't call for abstinence, out, sex inside of marriage, no sex outside of marriage. The Bible doesn't call for that simply because it's morally wrong, but also because it's personally harmful to us. Recall that it, all throughout the Old Testament, when God gave his people commandments, he would often remind them that he gave them these commandments for their good. That is, that the commandments that he was giving them were actually meant to, be, to do good to them in the end. And actually, Paul points that out here in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, I don't fully understand what he means by this, but notice in verse 18, he says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Notice that what he's saying here is that there's actually, uh, there's actually the, the God who designed our bodies is saying that actually, by choosing immorality, we are choosing to actually damage, in some ways, all that. And I'll just say this. If the God who designed me says that, then I may not understand how that works. I may not have seen that come to fruition in my life, but I need to trust him at his word. He designed me. He knows better than I do. Maybe even more important, look back at verse 9 and notice the clearest example of how this hurts us comes in verses 9 and 10 where he says don't be deceived neither fornicators or sexually immoral neither idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God and that should be enough right there to convince us that sex outside of marriage is terribly dangerous it can harm us not just in the short term it can harm us for all eternity I'll just add to that this. You know, sex doesn't just hurt you. It hurts other people, too. Uh, 
through sexual immorality, I may end up causing other people to stumble. I may end up causing other people to sin. You might say, well, what if I'm just engaging in, uh, in, in, in on my own? What if I'm just engaging in pornography? Well, even pornography can, can lead and can promote sin in others. For example, you might not be aware, but you, you need to be aware if you're not already, that the pornography industry is, is sometimes even, some people say, often connected with sex trafficking. In one survey, 63% of underage sex trafficking victims said they had been advertised or sold online. You thought about that? It's a motivation to stop looking at pornography. You're looking at pornography. You may be looking at somebody who's being abused or taken advantage of and being used for your own pleasure. It hurts other people. According to an anti-trafficking nonprofit in nine countries, 49% of sexually exploited women said that pornography was made of them while they were being sold for sex. Those are terrible. Those are deeply troubling numbers. And I want you to think about it. If, if, if ever sex was uh, being used as a consumer good, is it not pornography? I mean, think about it. Pornography is designed so that you can have it whenever you want, however you want. Is pornography destructive? Wow, there's a, there's a book I was reading uh, recently uh, called Premarital Sex in America. Uh, and they have a chapter in that book called uh, 10 Myths About Sex in, in Emerging Adulthood. Notice that the first phrase that Paul said there was, do not be deceived. The reason Paul said that was because there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of lies out there that we believe about sex. And one of the lies, uh, the, and in the book, they're trying to prove just, it's not a religious book, they're trying, they're social scientists, they're trying to prove scientifically that these things are, are, are not true, that these things are a lie. And one of, the, one of the myths that they say is uh, that, that lots of young people who they surveyed believe uh, is that, that pornography won't actually affect your relationships. Most young people would say, pornography, it won't actually affect your relationships. And, uh, and in, in, the, in the book, they point out that pornography actually, it doesn't just affect the relationships of the people who are using it. It affects virtually all relationships today, even if you're not spending time in it. You might say, well, how? Well, people who use pornography, for example, have completely unrealistic expectations on what a partner should be like. People who have used pornography often have completely unrealistic expectations for what a partner, what a spouse should and must be like. Uh, and, and actually, they pointed out that males specifically who use pornography uh, experience a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships. Pornography diminishes people's desire to get married because relationships are much more difficult than pornography is. You know, once you think about that, one of the reasons why there's far few people... Pe Far fewer people out there today is because pornography has, has tried, people have used pornography to try to fill the void, and now they feel like there's no longer a need for a relationship. I can get it quicker, I can get it easier, I can get it however I want it, at the time I want it. It's just a whole lot easier than going to the trouble of developing a real intimate relationship. But those of, you, those of us who have fallen into pornography can speak from experience and say that pornography doesn't fill the void. It only leaves you deeper and more empty than you were before. 
Also, pornography encourages men and women to compartmentalize sex as a consumer product to be regularly and briefly consumed. Unlike real relationships, it doesn't require work, and our lives are busy, after all. So, uh, so, uh, so why waste the time, you know, important time that I gotta be working on my job or my career or these other things when I could just use pornography and get it faster? I'll add this, all women are increasingly being affected by pornography, being forced to accommodate their sex life to what men are viewing in pornography. Sad, tragic consequences. Sin does not just affect me, it affects others. Think about this too, sex outside of marriage uh, affects others as well. Using sex for my own ends, my own needs, selfishly, it, it, it will affect other people. Another myth that's commonly believed by young people that's talked about in the book is that sex is necessary to sustain a struggling relationship. And ironically, they point out and they prove scientifically that the vast majority of people who have sex outside of marriage, when asked why, they respond to keep the relationship going. But they prove that actually most relationships fail, uh, and, and the sooner the relationship becomes sexual, the greater the odds of failure. Did you hear that? That is, the sooner the relationship becomes sexual, the greater the odds that the relationship is falling apart. Do you see what we're seeing here? What, what we're seeing in society, what society is beginning to realize, is what the Bible was telling us long beforehand, that God's way is actually best. That God knows best how to use sex for the glory of God. I'll show you one more real quickly. Um, a few years back, there was an article in the New York Times um, it was called, entitled by a clinical psychologist who was talking about the downside of cohabitation before marriage. And uh, she noticed that, it started I think when she noticed in a friend, um, that there were some real problems with the popular idea that you should only marry someone if they agree to live with you first. And that's a very popular idea in our culture. Um, you know, don't buy it until you try it, right? Uh, so we're going to live together and we're going to see if this works before we actually get married. But a nationwide study showed that two out of three young people in their 20s believed that moving in together before marriage was a good way to avoid divorce. And you can guess where this is going. In fact, she said that that belief is contradicted by experience. And she found that couples who cohabit before marriage are actually much less satisfied with their marriages than those who do not. And that they are more likely to divorce than couples who do not. And you might say, well, how could this happen? Well, one thing that she found that men and women agree on is that standards for a live-in spouse, for a live-in partner, not a spouse, a live-in partner, are lower than they'd be for a spouse. In fact, one lady said she never really felt that her boyfriend was committed to her I felt like, I, this is what she said, she said, I felt like I was on this multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. That's how she described it. We had all this furniture, we had our dogs, we had all the same friends, it just made it really, really difficult to break up. And then it was like we got married because we were living together once we got in our 30s, and then the whole relationship falls apart. You see the point here? If you're living together and you're trying to figure out whether you're compatible, you're using sex as a way that, to entice, not as a means for trusting and loving and serving and sacrificing for your spouse. And what this means is that sex outside of marriage is not going to prepare you for marriage at all. It's not going to prepare you at all for what sex is to be within marriage. And the author uh, concluded, that she's again not a Christian, 
but she said, I'm not for or against living together, but I am for young adults knowing that far from safeguarding against divorce and unhappiness, moving in with someone can create your, can increase your chances of making a mistake. Let's sobering thoughts. If the New York Times is saying that, then maybe we should listen to what the Bible has said about this. Let me just say one more thing here that we need to avoid. Uh, another pitfall of sexual immorality, and that is sexual idolatry. And by the way, this can happen to single people. It can also happen to married people. This can happen in marriage. This can happen outside of marriage. Uh, the, the, it goes kind of like this. I must have sex. I must have a relationship in order to be happy. And if I don't have a relationship, if I'm not getting sex, then I can't be happy. Don't believe what the culture says here. That if you, if you don't have sex, you can't be happy. In fact, an idolatrous desire for sex in a relationship has led many fools into marriages that, they, that, 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 that simply are ruined. Because they have an idolatrous desire for sex, an idolatrous desire for a spouse, an idolatrous desire for a family. And they end up marrying someone who oftentimes this is what happens. You end up marrying somebody who doesn't even have the same priorities as you. Doesn't even have the same goals or aims in life as you. And you may say, well, we have so much in common. But in truth, you don't, if you don't have the Lord in common, then you have nothing in common. Nothing that matters. Think about this. If you're a Christian, every other priority for the Christian pales in comparison when compared with the Lord. So if we don't have that in common, then we can't even share our life together. We can't even share the deepest, most important part of life together. Another thing that will happen if you, uh, if you say, I must have sex in order to be happy, is you may end up getting married to somebody who is good and godly, but you end up crushing them with your expectations in the relationship. Because you're, th because you're not viewing it as an opportunity to sacrifice and to give, but as an opportunity to receive. And many, uh, many people... Even some godly, many godly people are married and miserable because they view it as some sort of means to an end, some sort of means to a selfish end that ends up hurting. Now truthfully, the emphasis in this text is not primarily on what, how it hurts us. It's not primarily on how it hurts others. It's primarily on how our decision to choose sexual immorality hurts God. And I just want to say to you that the most important reason why sexual immorality is a problem is that it will destroy, it will ruin our relationship with God. Look again with me at verse 13. In, in this text, uh, starting in verse 12, Paul is interacting, I believe here, with some things that the Corinthians were saying. The Corinthians were saying things like, all things are lawful for me. And Paul responds, yeah, but not everything that's lawful is profitable. And then, and then the Corinthians uh, are saying, uh, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. And Paul responds and says, Yet the body is not for the Lord. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. You see, I think the argument goes something like this. Um, the world would say things like this. Well, food is for the stomach, stomach's for the food. The body's for sex, and the sex is for the body. Like, that's, that's just, we're just designed. It's a natural desire. Um, and Paul is, in essence, saying, you know, you might think that, that sex, sex is as natural as eating, that sex is just an appetite, and it's unhealthy not to fulfill it. But Paul says there's a difference. Food and the stomach is tra are, are transient. God's going to do away with both of them. But you know what he's not going to do away with? He's not going to do away with your body. Did you know that? 
Actually, that's a big emphasis in the book, in this letter to, to the Corinthians, is that actually, just as God raised up Jesus from the dead and raised his body up and gave him a new transformed, glorified body, so also we will be raised up in our bodies and given back to the Lord. Notice verse 15. Do you not know, uh, sorry, verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. The resurrection teaches us not to take the body lightly. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And they're destined to be transformed. And they're destined to be glorified with God for all eternity. Which means that we're not to be using our bodies just for our own self-centered desires. God designed the stomach for food, but he did not design the body for sexual immorality. In fact, our bodies are designed to be tabernacles, are designed to be temples, a place in which he could come and dwell. And because of that, our bodies are members with Christ. Have you thought about that? Your body is a member of Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, if you have put your faith in him and you've turned away from sin, then your body is a member of Christ, which means that it's his. You are not your own. It is given to you to be used as an instrument to serve God and to glorify God. And you see, this is what makes sexual sin so abhorrent. When we commit sexual sin, what we are doing is we are taking our body, one of the members of Christ, and we are saying we are taking it away from Christ and joining ourselves to another. Something that God gave us to serve Christ is now being used in a way that dishonors Christ. And there's no greater hurt and no greater pain and no greater sorrow that comes from sexual immorality than that. Well, obviously that's sobering and discouraging. Is there any encouragement for us in this text? And I think there is. So let's look at it again. How do we redeem sex and how do we use it for the glory of God? Well, first in verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. But we were washed. We were cleansed. We were justified. We were sanctified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. He says in verse 20, You have been bought with a price. I want you to think about this. One thing that Paul says God has offered us here is he's offered us complete cleansing. That is, when Jesus went to the cross... And died on the cross. He died to pay the price. You have been bought with a price. And when he paid that price, he set you free. He redeemed you. He cleansed you. He washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. Which means that that old identity that I had, that old identity that had been affected by all of my sexual sin and all of my sexual immorality, all of that has been done away with by the blood of Jesus. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been sanctified. 
You don't have to see yourself the way you used to see yourself anymore. You don't have to see yourself maybe the way other people see you anymore. You can see yourself as God sees you. And in God's eyes, though I may be ruined by the world, though I may have made horrific mistakes, though I may have been hurt by what other people have done to me, though I may be uh, 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 pained and suffered in so many ways, ultimately, in God's eyes, I am pure. I am clean if I am in Christ. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. You are bought with the price. Because of that, we have hope. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he speaks in verse 14 about Jesus' body not being the only body that's going to be raised. You see, God didn't send Jesus simply to die so that he could forgive us from our past sins. He sent Jesus to die so that Jesus could continue to work in us so that he could make us into a new human, a renewed creation, a renewed creature who is pleasing to him. Which gives us hope. And don't we need hope? When it comes to sexual immorality, we need hope. Some of us look at our past and it's hard to ever get rid of it. It's hard to move past it. What this text says is that there's hope for us. God will glorify us. God will transform us. God will make our bodies just as His. And we'll be with Him for all eternity. And you know what that means? That same resurrection power that raised Christ Jesus up from the dead is available to work in me to help me overcome the sin and the struggles that I'm facing right now. That means I don't have to give in to temptation. It's for this reason that later on in 1 Corinthians, he would say uh, in chapter 10 and in verse 13 that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Do you see that? God is promising that the same power that is going to raise us up in the last day is already at work in us. If we've died with Him, then we're also raised up with Him. And He is at work in us to to transform us and to make us what He has called us to be. And this gives us hope. Gives us hope for freedom from past sins that I've committed. Hope for freedom from past sins that any of us have committed. Hope for freedom from uh, the pain and the sorrow that comes from what other people, sins that other people have committed and sins that other people may have done to us. The Lord gives us hope. Finally, the Lord gives us a mission. He gives us mission here. Notice that he says that what we're doing when we have sex outside of marriage is we're taking what is Christ and we're giving it to another. We're taking what should be Christ and we're actually giving it to another. You either join yourself to the Lord as one spirit or you join yourself to another. And I just want you to think about for a moment. Who do you want to be joined to? Really and truly, who do you want to be joined to? Who else could you bear to give your life completely to other than the Lord. There's a song we used to sing when I was young. Some of you may know it. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as He. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me 
Oh, how much he cared for me. Isn't that true? Some of us, we've tried. We've tried living for somebody else. And, 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 and even sometimes when it's a good and a godly person, we still end up incomplete. We still end up empty. We still end up with nothing because we were created not for others first and foremost. We were created for God and we'll never rest until we run in Him. But what he says here is that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Your body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. That is, now I have a purpose, a mission in which I can live, a mission in which I can use that strength, that new identity, that new purpose, that new mission to help me overcome sin and to use my body to glorify God. And I want you to think about this. If you're struggling uh, with, with self-control right now, in the area of sexual sin. If you're struggling with that, I want you to think about this. We've got to learn to live every day in the reality that we are members of Christ. That our body is His body. That we are instruments of His. He is with us and we are working with Him. I had a friend who used to say, he said, we, we are all capable of self-control. He said, you know how I know that? He said, I've never seen someone unable to control themselves with another person in front of their parents. Um, right? When you're in the presence of your parents, you can control yourself. Why? Well, nobody wants to be caught doing something embarrassing or shameful in front of their parents. Right? That's the way, that's the way we think about that. Truth is that, that our Father is always with us. We are members of Christ. He is with us. We are, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling with us. Use that truth and take it with you. To remember, you'll have a hard time giving in to sexual sin if you're thinking about yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit. You'll have a hard time giving in to temptation if you're thinking about the fact that I'm a member of Christ, that the Lord is with me, that the Lord is helping me, that the Lord is using me to glorify Him in my body. Let me say a couple other things as we finish. If you've messed up sexually and you're feeling guilty, Keep in mind that every one of us is here because we've messed up and we felt guilty. That's why we're here. Such were some of us. All these things that he mentioned. And whatever you've done sexually is nothing compared to your unfaithfulness to the Lord. Ultimately, the greatest, the greatest wrongdoing that we could ever do is to be unfaithful to God. The deepest infidelity has been committed by every one of us, regardless of which specific sins we may be guilty of. And if we're in Christ, we've already found forgiveness for that through Jesus Christ our Lord. In spite of our past adultery, if we are in Christ, then God views us as pure and clean. And it is this knowledge of the washing and the cleansing, the justification that will renew us and strengthen us to keep ourselves pure with the Lord. Yes, it is true that if I continue in sexual immorality, it could cost me my inheritance with the Lord. But such were some of you. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. I just want to say, don't let the past haunt you. Remember the woman who was brought to Jesus, caught in the very act of adultery? What did Jesus say to her? I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, um, I do condemn you, and you better straighten up or you're headed straight to hell. He didn't say that. 
Neither did he say, I don't condemn you. And it really doesn't matter how you live anyway. It's just your body. You do what you want. No, Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Now use the grace that I've so freely given you and go and sin no more. Lastly, if you're dissatisfied in your marriage or if you're dissatisfied with being single, we need this reminder. Sex as God designed it is only a foretaste of the joy of being with God. And if sex is a foretaste, then we also know that sex and marriage in and of itself will never satisfy us unless we are married to Jesus. Sex and marriage will never satisfy us unless we are married to Jesus. If you're here today and you're single, let me say to you that you have, you have what you need first and foremost. And it's not sex and it's not marriage, it is Jesus. In Jesus, you have everything you need to satisfy you. You can have a fulfilling life without being married. You cannot have a fulfilling life, even if you are married, without Jesus. And this is why Jesus, when he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, um, that strange conversation, he said to her, go call your husband. I don't think actually in that moment it was because he really wanted to have a conversation with her husband. I think the point was in calling her to go call her husband, he wanted her to recognize that she had been living her whole life thirsty. She had, and, and what, is, what, what, what did she say? I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, yeah, actually you've had five and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. What is he pointing out to her? He's pointing out to her that she's been living her whole life thirsty and she's been seeking that satisfaction in all the wrong places, in broken wells that can hold no water. And do you realize that if we seek satisfaction in any relationship, in any pleasure, in anything of earth and not in God, it will leave us broken and empty like a well that holds no water. But here we are, we have the fountain of living waters at our fingertips. After being married seven years, I've learned a few things about marriage. Not a lot, but some. Let me tell you that as amazing as marriage is, and as amazing as Lindsay is, she wasn't designed to fulfill all of my longings. And it was kind of disappointing when I got married and realized that it didn't fix me. Didn't solve all the problems in me. Didn't, didn't, didn't resolve all the weaknesses and all the sins and all that wasn't, wasn't removed simply by getting married. Even if you have the best marriage, you will never be satisfied until you're married to Him. Only in Jesus can we be freed from this drive for independence, for this lust, for marriage. Only in Jesus can we be rescued from slavery to sin and free to glorify Him. So we must run to Him. Let Him buy you with the price. Marry yourself to Him. Let your body be His body. Make your body an instrument of His body. And glorify God in your body. And so doing, we'll come to be to experience what He talks about here, being one spirit with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word. Thank you for the truths that you've given us. Help us to remember them. May they not fall on our sometimes hard and deaf ears, but may they sink deep into our hearts. May they move us to seek you more diligently, to pursue you more fervently, to love you more deeply, to trust you more completely. I pray, oh God, that you'll help us to see what is your will for us in this world what it is you desire for us. I pray that you'll help us to come to trust 
in your plan to give our bodies, to give our whole lives to you so that we may become one spirit with you. Please, Lord, if there are those in our midst and there are those who are watching online who are, who are struggling with guilt, struggling with sorrow, struggling with pain over past sin, Lord, reassure them with the forgiveness that can come through Christ Jesus and reassure them with your abundant love. If there are those who are hearing this who need to repent, Lord, turn our hearts back to you. Turn our minds back to you. Lead us back to you. And do whatever it takes to bring us closer to you day by day. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be loyal to you. Help us to be married to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.